This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And last night's the Liberals squeaked by in two by-elections in writings that are traditionally liberal strongholds. So uh, is that a strong message to Ottawa, or does it just reflect the local races, or is it none of the above? How do you take it? Meanwhile, BC's NDP came back with a majority after their snap election, uh, as did Saskatchewan, uh, the Saskatchewan party and Scott Moe. Uh, we know it's taken as a given that governments, ruling governments are strong in the midst of a crisis like a pandemic. Is that all that we are seeing here. Meanwhile, here in Ontario, there are signs that the Ford government is falling to earth. Uh, there's some pushback against restrictions. Now, yesterday we were supposed to hear about modified stage two going into effect in Haltom and Durham. Uh, there, that uh, announcement was put off. That decision was put off. Uh, the premier says that it had nothing to do with political pressure, but it did happen after uh, some pressure from the mayor of Oakville and other mayors in the region. Uh, we also saw a bit of a brouhaha over a conservative MPP and parliamentary secretary, Sam Oosterhoff, getting caught in a very unsocially distanced photograph that he posted himself. You got to wonder what about that. Also on Friday, the government's own long-term care commission intervened with some very unusual interim recommendations uh, that I take as a big warning that they are not as prepared as they claimed that they were getting. And we could see another round of disaster in our nursing home. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to bring in our strategy panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. Okay, uh, let us begin with those by-elections. Uh, John, how do you see them? Well, I think that, you know, I, I congratulate my, my friend uh, Charles for the, uh, for the win, but uh, uh, not, ex- not unexpected. They're both, uh, you know, especially the Dwayne in Toronto. The Toronto um, Centre uh, riding has, has been liberal for forever. Uh, so there was no mu- not much surprise there other than, the Green Party leader, I thought, did extremely well, and and it would have been great to have her uh, in the in the parliament uh, had she won. But she came up with thirty two percent, I think, of, of the popular yep. vote, which which is relatively close uh, in, in that writing for the Green Party. So that was a testament to her, uh, certainly, and and how impressive she is uh, with respect to. Uh, you know, winning the leadership of the Green Party and, and some of the statements that she's made since then. Um, the the York Center by election was a bit more of a 
of a of a nail biter for uh, for the liberals. That one there, they of course they 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 kept that one, but the conservative came uh, within about six or seven points uh, of of almost toppling the liberal, which I think shows that you know there's not that much. You know, there might be some disenchantment with the with the liberals, especially when it comes to four one six writings, where you know, by and large, the uh, the liberals have, uh, have a stronghold. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, you're talking about Toronto Centre, and and if you want to speak about an, an embarrassment of riches, you had two extremely strong, extremely appealing black women candidates, Marcy Ian, who won for the Liberals, in addition to being backed by the Liberals. I mean, she's been a broadcaster for many years, so on in terms of name recognition alone, she would be way ahead there, right, Karen? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I do think it's a credit to the Green Party that they were able to put yeah. uh, forward the uh, result that they got, to be candid. And, um, you know, I think there's no question different dynamics going on in the different ridings, and that it was really a Green push to get out the vote as to the degree possible and in circumstances that are hard to campaign, to be candid. And, um, you know, I think that um, that there's no question that Toronto Centre is one of the safest Liberal seats probably in the country, so to have such a strong showing by the Green Party, I think, is a victory for the Green Party, for sure. And York Centre, I think, was a different dynamic in that um, that I think that, that, that those close results by the Conservatives are actually something Liberals, I think, need to pay attention to, because um, the fellow who, who left that seat, uh, Michael Levitt, he won by, what, 13.5% on the last election, and this election is much, much closer. And so it, um, I think it is something liberals should be paying attention to. Uh, Charles, is it something that the liberals should be paying attention to? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Although the by-elections are a little bit odd um, in as much as in Toronto Centre, the turnout was barely 30% of uh, eligible voters. And in York Centre, the turnout was barely 25%. Yeah. Um, in, in Toronto Centre, um, Marcy Ian and Anna-Marie Paul, the newly elected leader of the Anna-Marie, Green Party... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've never been able to pronounce that name. Sorry. Um, between them, they got 75% of the total vote, more than 75%, whereas the, the Conservative candidate came finished with less than 6%. And, and there's a reason for that. The Conservatives really devoted all of their resources to York Centre, because in a by-election, the whole name of the game is to get out your vote, identify your vote, and get it out. So rather than a referendum on how Justin Trudeau is doing as Aaron O'Toole inexplicably tried to frame it in the face of two by-election losses, um, it really was it was a testament to, to the ground game. And, you know, the Liberals had to fight two campaigns. The Conservatives focused all their attention in New York Centre. And the Conservative candidate um, actually got less than the Conservatives did in 2015. Um, which was when uh, Michael Levitt was first elected in York Centre, the previous MP. So um, the other interesting sideline from York Centre is, of course, Maxime Bernier, yeah. Uh, yeah. who was who was there. Spoiler, and for and for much of the night, um, a lot of conservative commentators were just out of their minds with regards to the thought that Maxime would ultimately split the vote, allowing the Liberal to go up the middle. The final results, um, Maxime's vote total didn't make a difference. Uh, the Liberals won uh, with sufficient support to uh, well, make his vote irrelevant. Seven, but it'll be interesting to see going forward how the People's Party of Canada um, and Maxime Bernier do impact um, conservative fortunes and, and maybe force Aaron O'Toole to veer further to the right. I, I'm, I was surprised that they're still around, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Well, that's that's the issue too, Libby. I think with respect to the People's Party, you know, um, Maxine Bernier is someone who's dying to try is is trying as hardest to get back into Parliament. Um, I think it was foolish for him to try in, in one of the Toronto ridings for sure, uh, knowing that he doesn't even live in the province. But um, but I, I suspect that you'll see a, another attempt by Max uh, Maxime at some point if there's another by-election between now and, and the election, whenever that may be, because I think he's just trying to get back into Parliament. But, you know, it was almost, you know, people talked about splitting the vote, and, and I think that's long gone. And, and the fact that Charles says that the People's Party is going to force Aaron O'Toole to go to the right is just not, not, not true at all. Uh, I don't think anybody from the Conservatives are paying attention to the People's Party or Maxime Bernier. I think that that decision was made in the last election where he lost his seat. The party didn't get anything. Um, there are concerns, of course, that in some writings he may, he may split the voting. But even in New York Center, I think he got about six or 700 votes. And, and the, the differential between the Liberal and the Conservative was just a, a bit, bit higher than that. So, so technically, he didn't really split the vote in some ways. But, but it does cause it's a bit of a fly in the ointment when you, when you come to think of it. Well, it was 700 votes that she won by, so uh, maybe maybe he did uh, keep them from a tie or, or a narrow victory then. Well, it would have been a lot tighter for sure if it wasn't for that. But that's to say that people that voted for the People's Party uh, were automatically going to vote for the Conservative, and that's not the case in some mm-hmm. cases. Like, I think that um, you know, you'll find that some people that vote for the People's Party would, would otherwise not, not vote at all. Um, you know, some, some you would think in, intuitively that might, they may be tending Conservative, um, but I think a lot of them don't. Uh, you can't assume that that a People's Party vote is a vote against the Conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, on the other hand, in B.C., they called a snap election, frankly, for no good reason, uh, because they could, and uh, they were rewarded with a majority. Yeah, and I, I think, again, you know, there is some... Um, reward for the fact that they that the NDP government has handled the, the pandemic in BC as perceived to be handling it very well and took advantage of an opportunity to secure a majority that they didn't have. And uh, also the fact the Liberals were um, ran a terrible campaign, I think helped as well. And so, uh, you know, but that's, those results are consistent across the country. Yep. And, and uh, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, I think no surprise there. Mm-hmm. The only surprise there is the emergence of the Buffalo Party, which I'm sure not many listeners will have heard of. But essentially, those are the folks that are uh, determined to see Alberta and Saskatchewan um, remove themselves from Confederation and from Canada. And they didn't do terribly well last night, but they did have a few uh, second place. Uh, they, they were contending for second place in a number of ridings, so that's definitely one to watch. In British Columbia, I just point out that it, it's not the Liberals, it's the B.C. Liberals who are essentially um, they're, they're a much different party than they were under Christy Clark who, and Gordon Campbell, who were both very centrist uh, premiers and, and quite successful over the course of uh, more than a decade. The the BC Liberal Party of today is much more right of center, and that was just out of line where where British Columbians were at, and that's something the party will just have to come to grips with um, as they look to replace the the BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson, who uh, led them to a pretty definitive defeat. Yeah. Um, let's move along to what is happening here. And my sense is that the Ford government was really riding, riding high the first few months of the pandemic, but uh, at this point, not so much. John? Well, I, I would say, uh, you know, Libby, that, that it's, it's going to ebb and flow. And then no one's ever going to be uh, that high 
uh, in the polls, no matter who you are and no matter what party you are, and, and if you're either a provincial leader, a municipal leader, or a federal leader, you know, to get approval ratings that are, you know, well, Scott Moe got, got 60% of popular vote in his election, his re-election uh, yesterday. But, but, but by and large, you know, leaders are not going to stay at that level. I think the key is to try to maintain it um, as much as you can uh, or to slip, uh, let it slip down, but not to the levels that you were before. And especially with Premier Ford, who, you know, it was almost a twofold uh, increase in, in popular vote. I think before the pandemic, he was having around 20% popularity um, of the party and himself. And, and I think he's now, you know, got still above north of 50% approval, which is down from before. But obviously, you know, there's tough decisions that have to be made. People are, are looking at, uh, certain things that are that are taking place and, and issues that are happening personally and, and within the province. But I still think that the premier uh, is making the right decision. I think by and large, people are happy with respect to the decisions he's, he's making. But, you know, given what, what we're facing and, and the issues that we're, uh, we're still having to deal with and that he's having to deal with, not only as a politician, but also from, from health authorities and health professionals who are trying to give him as much advice as they can with respect to what's happening on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. Okay, so let's move on to the latest silliness, because it's always Mm -hmm. uh, fun to discuss that. And uh, people, I'm going to give the numbers out again, because I'd like to hear from you about this Sam Oosterhof thing. And should he be taken down from his job as a parliamentary secretary? It's 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. So Sam Oosterhof, who is... 23 years old, um, took a picture at a private event, uh, very people very close together, no masks, no social distancing. And afterwards, uh, uh, we heard that throughout that evening, the people who run that particular banquet hall were trying to discipline them and to tell them to follow the rules, but they did not. And uh, he posted the thing himself. I mean, duh, do you not know that this goes against what your government is trying to tell people to do? So is is there uh, anything uh, lasting to this? Is this just what happens when you have kids in public office? Uh, Premier Ford says he's 100% behind Sam and Sam's not going to lose his job. Karen? Yeah, I think this is one of those moments that is a, a, a bit of a learning moment where um, he's Sam's going to have to realize the party line is important. And if there was ever an important party line to tow, it's the fact that we're battling a pandemic and that leaders need to um, behave in the way they want the public to behave. And so if I think if, you know, back to the previous comment about Ford's popularity, I think the one thing that uh, could be a problem for him is the mixed messaging, the inconsistent messaging, the uh, pe- the public's not really sure. You know, can we trick or treat? Can we not? Do we? Can we go to school? Can we not? Do, like, can we? How do we get a COVID test? And then to have uh, a leader or to have a member of his government to be seemingly violating the rules that the rest of us have to live by uh, for reasons that are completely unclear um, and posted by himself is almost as if to demonstrate the way that he's choosing to conduct himself, I think could be a problem. And whether he needs to lose his job, I don't know. But certainly there needs to be some action taken that the public can see so that the government can stay consistent with the messaging that you need to wear a mask when you're in these kinds of gatherings. And it's not, we are going to lead by example in that regard. Charles, should he lose, well, not his full job, but part of his job for sure? Should he? Lose? I don't think he will. I think, I think, 
Premier Ford is in a very, very difficult position with his own party and with his own caucus and with his own ministers. And I'd say at the outset, um, it's amazing to me having seen the photo, and there's about 20, 30, maybe 40 people in that photo tightly crammed together, posing, none of them wearing masks. The, 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 The amount of disregard for the reality of the pandemic and the virus is, is really the most shocking part of it, notwithstanding the fact that he's an elected official. But, but Is it his youth, virus, you think, or is there anything else to it? Uh, I'm sorry, Libby? Is it his youth, do you think, or do you think there's anything else to it? Oh, it might have been a family thing. I, I really don't know. But I, I think it, it's a real problem for the premier because there are a good number of people in his party who think that the restrictions that have been imposed on the economy have gone way too far, that um, it, we really should have let this thing run its course and kept restaurants open and kept theaters open. I mean, that is a tangible line of thought within among conservatives, and we see it south of the border as well. The fact that it's suicidal is neither here nor there, but it is a political reality with which the Premier is now contending, and he's hearing it from his own ministers. And you saw a letter written by a couple of MPs to uh, the chief medical officer in uh, Halton region saying, boy, you know, let's not go too crazy with whatever restrictions get imposed here. And this is another problem for Premier Ford, because, you know, he's been saying, I've got to trust the experts, I've got to trust the science. And he came out and said it was actually him who suggested to his MPPs that they write to the chief medical officer of Halton. So it, most Ontarians look at this and go, hang on, right? You've been really good up till now about, you know, staying true to your guns and our health comes first and the science comes first. So a lot of mixed messaging happening all of a sudden. So this is a way bigger problem than just a photograph of a 23-year-old MPP. Hmm. Okay, because I've I've also heard some things, and this uh, is speculation, that uh, in his community, they don't necessarily believe in all the social distancing. Yeah, yeah well, he, where is he? What's his community? Is it Niagara region? Uh, yeah, Niagara West Glanbrook. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's it's uh, it's a very strict religious community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's all this is this is nonsense. The hypocrisy is what gets me. You know, there's a picture of of the, the federal minister of, of health, Patty Haydu. Yeah, let's talk about that. You're well, right. Let's, let's, let's talk about the hypocrisy here, right? Because of course, CBC was quick to uh, to condemn Andrew Scheer uh, for being in the in the airport without a mask, and of course, there's. Uh, you know, Minister of Health Patty Haydu in an airport without without a mask, and of course, nothing. Nobody talks about it. Charles is not up in arms about about the fact that his own federal health minister is without a mask. And yet, you know, Sam Ostroff, and I would admit that is an absolute foolish thing to do. And the fact that he took his own selfie, and uh, but he has apologized. He, he went to the premier and uh, and the minister of health and said that that was a foolish thing to do, and he's apologized. And, and probably, as Karen said, a lesson learned. But you know what? There are others who have done this, and the level of outrage, uh, if a liberal or somebody else does it, versus if a conservative is seen with it, is what gets me. And I think it's it's, it's beyond the pale. And, and quite frankly, you know, and also with respect to MPPs sending letters with respect to defending their writings, who wouldn't? If, if businesses went up to your elected official and said, I need you to help me save my job, uh, and I need you to write a letter to the premier or to the health uh, official or officers, 
uh, it is their job as an MPP to do so. And, and that you wouldn't expect nothing less from that to happen. The Premier will make decisions, as he always has, against, you know, sometimes against the popularity. But most businesses want to be open. Toronto didn't want to be shut down. Peel didn't want to be shut down. But he shut them down in a modified stage, too, because he knew that was the right thing to do. And he will continue to do the right thing. I, I just want to interject with uh, Patty Haidu and that picture. So it did get some play. It was on the weekend. And she said she took her mask off to eat. And there was uh, food photographed right next to her. So I don't know. Uh, personally, I have to say, in terms of issues with, with the health minister, um, I, I think there are issues that are a, a lot bigger than whether she was eating or not. Uh, you know, so uh, let's not give her a pass. Yeah, so you know, I, I'll agree with you on that one. Um, but but the other thing, just to Charles' point about the science, you know, the science by everyone's admission, from our top public health officials down, is that the science shifts, and it's also not as if everybody is in agreement with what the public, the right public health measures are. And so, you know, if there was full alignment, here's what we need to do, then it would be really easy. But there's been shifting messaging from many things, from wearing masks to uh, whether you whether a runny nose constitutes um, a, a COVID test, to, um, you know, whether you can have six to ten people in a room, whether, you know, so it's, it's for the public, you know, it's just been shifting. And so, and as I say, it's not even if the experts, the epidemiologists, the public health experts all agree on a course of action because now there's a movement towards super spreading events and that those should be targeted as opposed to blanket uh, business closings. So, you know, I think it is fair for MPs and MPPs and mayors and people to say, like, hold on, because you close my business, you're having, like, not just my business, but you're closing, if you just do the blanket closing, that has a significant impact on on people's lives that, that is material. So let's not forget that when we're talking about how we combat a virus which is equally real, but one that we actually don't know yet that we're using the right tools to solve. Okay. And now I just noticed I was about to take a call from a caller named Bill and he's, he's gone. And, and the, the little note said that I was being condescending by calling him a kid. And he's like, you're right. <laughs> and, but I have to wonder if uh, youth, you have somebody doing something against the rules and then posting it. Um, probably not something an older person would do, but yeah, he's absolutely right for calling me out on that. I'm just saying. <laughs> I wish I was still a kid like him. <laughs> you, can call, you can call me a youth anytime, Libby. <laughs> a youth? No, we're not calling any of you youth, <laughs> especially me. Okay, I'm losing part of my earpiece here. Um, yeah, so th- there's all of this, you know, roiling now. And meantime, we have we see Quebec extended restrictions. We're going to be discussing that in our next segment, but what everybody is saying, or I mean public health officials saying, they're saying, well, what we're seeing now is is probably from Thanksgiving, and it's too soon to see if the new measures that are being taken are, are even working, right? Yeah, you know, the one thing I find, um, I'm loath to use the word encouraging, but it was in September that the province of Ontario released modeling suggesting that we would see the peak of the second wave in October and that it would likely exceed 1,000 new cases per day. And lo and behold, that happened on the weekend, and uh, subsequent numbers have been a little better, around the 900s. But if the province has its modeling down to that extent, that suggests that we could see 
a significant downturn in new cases through November and hopefully into December. So I I have a little more faith in the system as a result of the folks doing the modeling, getting it so correct. Um, Quebec is a different animal. They've had a much more difficult time with the virus for reasons that, that at some level are cultural in terms of how uh, Quebecers interact, uh, the nature of their pro- relative proximity. Um, and so, uh, you know, Quebec has been the hotspot across Canada and, and may continue to be for some time. Yeah, we have uh, just a few minutes left, so let's talk about the U.S. elections. And one of the things that, you know, you look at what's going on there, or I do, shake my head, thank God I'm Canadian. And uh, in terms of the pandemic, thank God it's not, it's people disagree here, but it's not a political issue wearing a mask. So um, let's just talk about the U.S. election. John, what do you think? Well, I think that, you know, it remains polarized, and you're right. Wearing a mask has become a Republican and Democrat issue, and I think it's large part because of what the president has been saying, but also also Biden in some respects. So I think that's a problem there. And and I think, and again, I'll give credit to the prime minister for extending the the deadline for uh, for not having to uh, for the for the border being closed to I think now it's November the 21st or something which I think is, is smart um, given given what's happening in the U.S. Um, I still think it's uh, you know I still think it's Biden's but I think that you know you can't underestimate uh, Trump I think his numbers are narrowing uh, for sure in some of the some of the battleground states and also don't underestimate the fact that Amy Coney Barrett is now the Supreme Court justices justice and the fact that they did that don't underestimate how many uh, of of Trump's base support in some of those uh, some of those battleground states are now going to be emboldened because of that move, and you'll see a bit of an uptick in his popularity uh, and uh, and more people going to the to go to the polls as a result of that one move. Well, uh, it's also possible. Some of the punditry I've heard is that well, now that she's in, for a lot of those people who are holding their nose and voting for Trump because they wanted a conservative justice, now that they're in, they're free not to. Charles, do you think that will play out? I don't know. Um, I, I think it is more likely to motivate uh, Trump's base than not. Although that's not a base that needs much motivation. And one of the reasons his victory was so unexpected in 2016 was because pollsters failed to pick up on a lot of folks who ended up voting for Trump. Um, they may not have had the, they may not have been able to reach those folks in terms of their polling activity. But there's also a phenomenon, you know, if I asked John, you know, have you ever, uh, have you ever cheated on your taxes like that? I'm a pollster. You can tell me it's all confidential. Um, even if John had, um, he would be more inclined to tell the pollster, no, I haven't. And that may be happening with Trump's support as well. So, you know, in 2016, there was anywhere from five to eight percent shifts in terms of what the polling said about the battleground states to what Trump actually got. And he consistently outperformed the polls. And that could happen this time. What's what's also interesting is, you know, if Trump ends up with 45, 46 percent of the the total vote, you, you got to ask yourself, I mean, how could 45, 46 percent of Americans vote for this guy? Right. I mean, after how he's conducted himself and how he's debased the office of the presidency and 
all those things. And there are some really important lessons there for Canadians. I mean, Americans more and more live in an echo chamber. The days of everyone turning on Walter Cronkite to get their interpretation of what's happening to their country is long gone. And the other unspoken secret is, you know, most Canadians self-identify as Democrat when they're, when they're asked. But there is about 20% of Canadians, by some estimates, who really like Donald Trump. And that number is probably closer to 40 or 50% within people who send up itself. Yeah, but that's, that's irrelevant. It's <laughs> not irrelevant if Trump wins, yeah. because if Trump wins, that will be a signal to conservatives that that style of governance is A-OK, and oh. that it's OK to go after him. Okay, it's OK we're, we're to at- go after scientists, and it's OK to go after public officials. We're, we're, we're basically out of time. I've got to give uh, Karen her last 20 seconds. Karen. Yeah, I, I just would just would like to say I, I don't agree with Charles on that. Um, and that, you know, people that I know voted for Trump um, because they had ideas about government and the way it was the direction it was headed. Um, there are people who might still vote for Trump in spite of his behavior. But I don't think that that is a license for conservatives to believe what he believes. And so, uh, you know, I as we head into the election, I'm actually more and more convinced Trump will not win. Um, but, but, you know, but we'll, but we'll see. And, uh, you know, I think that whoever wins, the United States has been um, inevitably changed in terms of its culture, in terms of its standing in the world. And that has more of an impact on Canadians than who becomes president. Okay, well, that is a, a good note to end things on for the week. You know, next week we are going to be here as the election is on. Well, it's on now, but their election day is on. So uh, that should be for a fascinating conversation. In the meantime, thank you so much, John Capobianco, Charles Bird, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.